I thank God that I can be with you this morning and be part again of this very, very special worshiping community. I have worshiped in so many places under so many extraordinary circumstances and so many very ordinary circumstances, but there is no place quite like this. And it is a privilege always just to worship here, to listen to others here, and to be able to minister in any way that one has a chance here. Incidentally, uh, I don't remember many places uh, where I first heard a hymn or first learned it, but I do know the location of the hymn that was so beautifully rendered for us just a few moments ago, Be Thou My Vision. I was in a preaching mission in Platteville, Wisconsin. I had never heard it before, and they made it the theme song of that mission. And I have loved it ever since, and I am profoundly grateful that those who planned this service knew the mind of the Lord where I would not have, and that there are talents here that uh, I wish I could compete with that could deliver this word to us uh, in such exquisite fashion today. God has been very patient with us human beings. God gave us a perfect beginning. All was well. We were in an Eden. Nothing could go wrong unless we messed it up. And we discovered that no matter what good thing God did, we've always been successful in messing it up. This must be God's greatest disappointment and yet God's greatest expression of love that he deals with us messed up human beings. When at last there was a whole new foundation for the future in a new people, the nation of Israel, God gave them the equipment, the ground plan, the game plan for the new kingdom. The new kingdom as it would be at least for a time until the kingdom of God should come through God's Son, Jesus Christ. That temporary and yet permanent arrangement for the people of God, we call the Ten Commandments. It's a remarkable document, remarkable because it is given to a people in slavery. Slavery, yes, because these Jews had been slaves for hundreds of years until they had even lost the impression of what freedom would be like. They had no national memory, no faith memory of who they were to be as a free people. But this nation of slaves was given now a game plan for their part in establishing the kingdom of God. And all of it was a deliverance from slavery. It was so when they, God said, I have a right to give this to you because when you were slaves, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. The same thing God can say to each of us when we make our confession in him and accept him as our Lord. I have a right to give you commands because I got you when you were a slave and I've been working with you ever since. In this case, it meant that they had been slaves to as many gods as there were evil imaginings. They were part of a world that was always finding something to worship that was not worthy of worship. And that made them slaves, the most abysmal kind of slaves. 
And then these slaves had other problems almost immediately because those gods to whom they were slaves needed some kind of formula, they began to make pictures of their gods. Whether it was a stone, whether it was a tree, whether it was the sun, moon, and stars, whether it was the change of the seasons, human beings found images to bow down and worship. And they carved out their own images. The psalms, the psalmists and the prophets mock the pathetic way that people took anything they could and made a picture of it so they could be greater slaves to more gods, to more confusions, a greater fear of whether the sun was against them or the moon or the dog or the lion or whatever. They needed some picture to bow down to keep them going. And then, of course, if they should know there is a God, they will take the name of that God in vain. And they did. As surely as there was a God that was true, they had to find inadequate names for that God or to choose to use that name of God carelessly. And so it went with the whole human story. Do we have family that sustains us? If so, we will pervert the family. Do we have loyalty of marriage that would continue the race in its pursuit of God's purposes? Then we will corrupt marriage with lust. Do we find at times that we have to get along with other people for whom we have no immediate capacity for getting along? If so, we will then, of course, decide to kill them, sometimes with sword, sometimes in our day with bullets, sometimes with words, sometimes with mockery, sometimes with innuendo, sometimes simply by the belittling of them, by the little attention we pay to them. We keep killing people to get rid of the bigness of the world and to make it smaller. And so too with the promises we make. When it's possible to be a people of great promise, we turn promises into lies. And when it comes to the point, of course, of watching someone else prosper and knowing that when someone else prospers, I prosper too, we instead decide that if someone else is prospering, that I'm suffering. And so I have to envy them what they have. Even if I had gotten it first, I wouldn't have liked it. But when they get it, now I think it's something I must have. So it is that we took the bigness that God gave us and made it smaller and smaller and smaller. And God gave us commandments to give us the freedom again to be all that we could be. It seems to me that in a sense, the very linchpin of all of this is that peculiar fourth commandment that we should remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's a peculiar commandment because it is prior to the actions of God within the human race. That is, 
this is the deed of God that God did. This was God's commandment to God's own self. God would take a day off to do nothing but rejoice in the wonder of his goodness and of the goodness of the world that he has made, the universe that he had made. That is, this commandment was not against some sin that we had committed after we got our freedom. It isn't the result of something that happened to us as we left Eden. This is a commandment that came to us in the very nature of God, that God is, first of all, a worker, and God is a rester. And that, that work we do is so significant that when we get it done, we should say at intervals, I did it. I finished it. Isn't that lovely? Now what shall I do? Shall I get some more work to do as soon as possible? No. What I shall do now is rest. That's what God did. When God got done with it all, God rested. Now isn't that lovely? That God wanted us to be like his own self in such a way as this. And isn't it flat out stupid that we don't know what to do with it? <laughs> and isn't it exquisitely stupid that God's servants, preachers, teachers, musicians, pastors, evangelists, we're the most difficult to understand that God wants us to rest, to say at intervals, that's enough. It's lovely. Thank you. I think I'll rest today. And God says, well, of course. Isn't what you learned from me that you should be a rester? Isn't it strange? Well, I have come more and more to feel as I live in the world of religion, and I've been living in it for quite a while now, that nobody has a harder time handling the day of Sabbath than the servants of God. And one of the reasons we have such a hard time handling the Sabbath is that we don't know how to handle the six days prior to the Sabbath. That is, those six days are days of privilege to work. And we ought to enjoy working, and we ought to be productive. And then we ought to come to a place where we say, I've done it. Now I stop working. But instead, we think that we follow a nervous God who can't stop working. We forget that God came to a place where he said, that's it, now I'm going to rest. And then God said, when the commandments were given to us, now you do the same thing. It's an interesting thing in this, among others, that this commandment was not a commandment just for Jews, though it became their hallmark. It was not just for them. It was for their servants, their slaves, their oxen, their cattle, their sheep. Everything was to have a day off. 
it's an extraordinary thing that God cared as much about the slave or the servant who was working in Israel as God cared about the Israelite. Because the Sabbath belongs to everybody. Why? Because everybody's supposed to be a worker. Then when they get done working, everybody's supposed to rest. The Jews should have understood that, of course, better than anybody. They lived in a world where there were no Sabbath days as slaves. For them, every day was a work day. There were no seven days a week. It was just week after week after week after week. All the days the same. And God said, that's not the way it should be. And this, I say, is because God is a worker God. And I'm satisfied that if we knew more about working six days, we'd do better with the seventh day. Until we learn how to handle those six days, we're always going to treat the Sabbath day, Sunday or whatever other day you have to choose to make your Sabbath, we're always going to treat that Sabbath or Sunday as a garbage dump where we put all the stuff that we didn't get done in the six days that we were supposed to work. And instead of resting to the glory of God, we're trying to catch up with ourselves. As if God were saying, you know, you haven't finished that assignment yet. You know, you haven't made that call yet. But the point then is to know a couple of things. One is simply that, yes, God is a worker. And all of human beings are meant to be workers. We were not to float to heaven on flowery beds of ease, there to play our harps, unless by chance we're in the harp choir, because everybody is supposed to work in this world God has given us. And here's the irony of it. Abraham Lincoln caught this irony, of course, as a political leader, that you can't have some people slave and some people free. For if some people are slaves, then the free people aren't free anymore. And if we can't learn to be free before God, we become slaves. Slaves to, not to God, but slaves to something short of God. You see, well, let's put it this way. God, indeed, wanted all of us to work. It's an honor and a privilege to be productive in whatever way we can. It's fascinating that little children, when they want to play, they play work. And they find that work is fun when they're playing it. But they want to work. That's how they play. And we, therefore, should learn how to love work the way God loves work. But one of the reasons God loved work was because God was organized. What an improper, unsanctified word to bring into a sermon. God was organized. God didn't get up on Tuesday morning and say, let's see, yesterday, now I finished that, uh, what was that I did yesterday? Well, I'll start today and I'll see how this day works out. There was no uncertainty in God's plan. The creation is a marvelously organized picture. Whether you're a six-day creationist 
or an evolutionist, this is a wonderfully organized program. God is organized. And so when God came to the end of any given day in that process of creation, God looked at it and said, that's enough for today. That's good. And he called it a day because he was organized. My father loved his work. I didn't know that until the year before he died. I always felt sorry for him that leaving the world of the farm as he did long before I was born and coming to the city where there was only one thing for a farm boy to do when he came to the city and that was to be a teamster. My father became a teamster delivering with horse and buggy and then with a truck that my brothers-in-law all said dad drove as a if it were still a horse and a buggy. <laughs> but my father worked six days a week, and every evening when he came home, he was done for the day. He was fortunate in that regard, because when the day's work was ended, he couldn't deliver tomorrow's laundry, he couldn't pick up tomorrow's dirty clothes, he couldn't do that until the next day. So when he came home in the evening, he rested. He read the paper. We ate our meal, we had our prayer at the table, he would visit with somebody as he sat on the porch in the summertime. The day's work was done. He could rest. We have become a marvelously trained and sophisticated people who know how to do so many things now that we never find time to rest. We just always see one more thing that ought to be done. One of the finest things that could happen, therefore, to all of us as students, as pastors, evangelists, teachers, musicians, is to be able to know when a day's work is done and to say, I'm not going to borrow on tomorrow. I'm going to enjoy this evening now because I finished my day's work. But you aren't going to be able to do that if you don't organize your day. Now, having said that you should organize your day, and that's a process, incidentally, which is a work always in process. But after learning how to organize your day, you have to be ready, whatever you are, for two interruptions. They are both miracles in their own way. One interruption is people. The other interruption is God. And if you aren't ready to be interrupted by people and by God, your organization is all gone, all wrong, all bad. You must be ready at any point to say, I had planned to write another hundred words today, but I can't because I must pray with so-and-so. I must listen to so-and-so. I've listened to them before. I've listened to them God knows how many times. I've lost count, but I must listen again. That's because that's a person. And you and I, we, our goal in life, our achievement is not to get a degree. It is not to write a book. It is not to sing a solo. It is not to gain to a certain level of prominence within one's denomination or one's system. It is not even 
to be able to say how many hours we've prayed. Our assignment is human beings, people, just people. And in that process of people, we also come to a point where we find God interrupting. And between God and the people, miracles keep happening. I was delighted to hear a person I'm proud to call my friend, Matthew Sleet, say in this chapel a week or so ago that uh, he's gotten to expect a miracle every day. Little miracles, maybe in other people's minds, not for him. They are miracles from God. Little miracles that happen. Let God break into the day whenever, with people and with miracles. But then, of course, the secret is that of the astronauts, re-entry. Get back to your plan again. Get back to the organization. I found as a pastor that I didn't lose so much time listening to people as I lost getting back to my job after I'd hung up the telephone. It's re-entry to the work of the day and the organization that makes the difference. So God was organized, and as a result, God got a great deal done. God apparently didn't allow himself to become despondent over the ways that he may have failed. We don't ex exercise the idea of failure with God. We have to with ourselves. We have to acknowledge, therefore, that at some point in some day, we say to ourselves, I don't know what went wrong today. I didn't get anything done to the degree that I wanted to. Well, don't condemn yourself with that unduly, and don't condemn other people with it, because that kind of self-hatred and that kind of condemning of other people is only a way to destroy your sleep at night, which makes you still more useless the next day. The secret instead is to say, what could I do better tomorrow? And today is done. I can't do anything more. Tomorrow, I'm going to not do that stupid thing. Tomorrow, I'll do well with this. I'm learning. And then, of course, keep in your mind the thing that I said in passing a few moments ago. This business of organizing your life is a continual work in progress. I've developed a lot of systems over the years. I keep working on them. I keep developing them. Some of the gains I've made, some of you would say, I've always done that. I know that. You're better than I am. That's okay. It's taken me a while to learn this one. You may someday discover some little thing that I think is simple too. But only now has it come to you. And when you get it, you say to yourself, how wonderful that I can get that much done if I just make that little shifting of gears, that slight change in my life. So we learn to organize our lives. We learn to organize our lives around what matters most, God and people. We learn to decide where our time is going to go rather than letting Circumstances decide the time for us, because circumstances will always find ways to annihilate time. 
and will always take it from you, no matter, no matter, no matter. And then suddenly you've worked your six days or your five, whatever law or your position or whatever allows. And then it's your Sabbath. For some people, it really is Sunday. For some people, it's another day of the week because they have to work on Sunday. Our world has gotten more complicated in that regard. I think one of the loveliest experiences I've had in a very long while was when a Sunday school class uh, in a little town in upstate New York uh, invited me to come and spend the Sabbath with them in one of the few Seventh-day Baptist churches in the world because they'd been using some of my literature and finally had named their class the Backside Sabbath Day class after some of my books. And they invited me, therefore, to spend the Sabbath with them. What a wonderful thing it was to go to one of their homes that Friday evening and find that I was in a kind of, a kind of Christian Jewish celebration where they were celebrating the Sabbath Eve with the father in the household reading a scripture and with a meal that was sumptuous in its special way. And then knowing they were going to be all out of step the next day, the rest of the world would be working on Saturday. They, to their discomfort, for some of them the losing of their jobs, they were going to worship, love God, and rest on the Sabbath. Now, if then, I'm trying to say to you this, that God gave us a lovely thing when he gave us the Sabbath. And God gave us a lovely thing when he gave us six days to work. And that I don't see much hope for the Sabbath until we learn what to do with the six days that lead up to it. For as long as we expect that we can live our six days disorganized and working hard and impatient because we aren't getting more done and missing the point of it all, if we don't know how to use those six days, we will always be messed up when the seventh day comes. Whatever week you choose, whatever day you choose for your Sabbath, You'll have it messed up unless you know how to take care of the first six days. That's part of the commandments, you see. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Then the seventh day is a Sabbath. Now treat it like a Sabbath. Kiss it, hug it, love it, laugh with it, eat with it. Sleep with it, whatever it is that brightens your life. Grab hold of it with all your might. Why? Because you've labored for six days and you've got this coming to you. Hallelujah, it's the Sabbath. But we only are fully going to get a hold of that Sabbath if we learn how to use the six days prior to that Sabbath. Let's say our prayers. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, including, O oh God, 
the Sabbath, and including the days of work. What a privilege, my God, to be a worker. And what a privilege to be a loafer. What a wonder to love you with work for six days and to love you with laughter and eating and sleeping and enjoying all of life on the seventh as a seventh, as a holy action before you. Save our six days of work, O oh God, so that we may give the seventh back to you with wonder and glory. Amen.